Hi, my name is Sidney Finkelstein, and you're listening to Radio Free Leader. Welcome to Radio Free Leader. I'm your host, David Burkus, best-selling author and recovering academic, and this is the show that tears down the wall between the ivory tower and the corner office. Each episode brings you an outstanding thinker to help you lead smarter by sharing insights from social science and practical applications for leadership, innovation, and strategy. Make sure to stay up to date with Radio Free Leader and get some great stuff we don't share on the show by joining our community. Sign up on the show notes page for this episode at davidberkuscom slash 714 or text Radio Free to 33444. We'll even get you caught up with our Radio Free Leader Starter Kit, a collection of our most popular episodes sent right to your email inbox. Again, that's davidberkuscom slash 714 or text Radio Free, all one word, to 33444. I want to remind you my new book, Under New Management, is out, and I have to say I am truly blown away by the way that this community has spread the word about these ideas. Great leaders don't innovate the product, they innovate the factory. That's an idea I explore throughout the whole book. How do you innovate your workplace in order to get the most out of your people? And I'm blown away by the level that this community has innovated the ways that they spread the word. So thank you all so much if you've already got a copy of the book. If you haven't, you can check out the book. Just go to my website, davidburgess.com. You cannot miss it. Um, so check that out, or it'll be on the show notes page for this episode. Again, davidberkuscom slash 714. Thank you all so much, and I really hope you enjoy Under New Management. Today's episode features Sidney Finkelstein. Sidney is a professor of management at the Tuck School of Business at Dartmouth College. He's also the author of the phenomenal book, Super Bosses, How Exceptional Leaders Master the Flow of Talent. And no, that Super Bosses title is not hyperbole. Sidney uh, did a ton of research, 10 years of, in- of research, 200 interviews to find out that in almost every industry, there are leaders who really are the top echelon of managers, of leaders. They create new leaders. They find different ways to attract and retain talent. And their job looks very different than the manager role we see satirized in movies like Office Space or shows like The Office or Dilbert Comics, etc. So Sydney and I talk about what makes a super boss so super and how anybody can sort of learn to begin to master that flow of talent. And I, we even talk about why he chose the specific word flow, meaning that talent comes in, you get to work with it for a time, and then how you say goodbye to it is hugely important. There's a ton of great lessons in this interview. So without further ado, here is my conversation with Sidney Finkelstein. So who are you and what do you do? Sid Finkelstein. I'm a professor at the Tuck School of Business at Dartmouth College, and uh, I uh, do research and write books on things like why people do really dumb things, uh, make big mistakes in life, and uh, more recently, uh, what accounts for some of the world's best bosses and what do they do that's different than anyone else. I live in Hanover, New Hampshire, in beautiful Dartmouth College, and uh, when I'm not out there writing these books and talking about them, I enjoy sub-zero temperature and lots of good food. All right, well, so New Hampshire's a good place if you're enjoying sub-zero temperature. I, I, actually, I grew up outside of Boston, and so I, mo- I moved away because I do not enjoy sub-zero temperature. <laughs> um, I enjoy sub-100 temperature, so, so no, if that's a thing. That. Well, you know, I grew up in Montreal. Uh, oh, even, okay, so uh, even colder. I'm south also. Ah, all right, fair enough, fair enough. Uh, <laughs> a little bit different south movement there, but that's fine. And you write, and you write books about why people make terrible mistakes, but also... You write books about why people make really, really good choices, especially as it pertains to talent, which is kind of what we're looking at 
in Super Bosses, which I so uh, admittedly before this book came out, I think there's a lot of people, myself included, that would very rarely put the term super and the term boss together. Uh, I think most people have the opposite experience. But every once in a while, there are those exceptional leaders that leave uh, clues. And, and in your book, you talk about people like um, Lauren Michaels, who you know I'm, I'm a huge fan of, Larry Ellison, and a bunch of other sort of super bosses that do a lot of exceptional things to attract and retain and grow talent. Um, how did that, yeah, well, first of all, how did you transition from studying, you know, terrible decisions people make to wanting to study this? And then how did you actually go about this study? Cause if I remember right, it was a, almost a decade long process of research that led to these insights, correct? Yeah, that's, I mean, that's exactly right. It's a great question. And, and there actually is a direct connection from what I had done previously on why smart executives fail and why people make bad choices to, uh, to the new work on, on these super bosses. And that is, uh, you know, after, after writing, um, a couple of books on, on those topics of failure, you, you go around and work with companies and do some consulting and do some speaking. And I had some ideas in the book on what you can do to avoid those problems, which of course is what everybody wants to, uh, wants to know. But over time, I felt like there was more to the story that I hadn't really gotten to. And, and, and the more I thought about it, the more I kind of pinned down, you know, if there was just, if there's one thing that you needed to do to be successful as an organization, to thrive, to live longer, um, I, I, I think it's the, the ability to generate and regenerate talent on a continuous basis. And, and that realization finally got me going to think about, well, who's good at that? You know, who's really got that track record of, of producing world-class talent? And uh, that brought me to originally um, Alice Waters, you know, the famous chef and restaurateur from uh, Chef Panisse in, um, in Berkeley, um, the woman that pretty much created or resurrected the farm-to-table organic local sourcing uh, of high-quality food, and, um, and, and you look at the number of people that went through her restaurant that worked for her, it's in the hundreds, uh, that have opened up their own place, their own restaurants, their own bakeries, you name it. And, uh, and I said, wow, okay, so there's someone who did it, and let me kind of figure out what, what it is she did. And then I started asking the question, well, who else is there? And I started looking at one industry after another, from National Football League, to jazz, to consumer packaged goods, to hedge funds, to advertising, to, to American comedy. I mean, lots of really diverse industries. And it you know, turns out in every industry I looked at, I was able to identify that one, sometimes two, but mostly one person that had this, this outsized influence on the development of, of great talent. And uh, those, are, those are the people that I came to call super bosses. Hmm. See, I think that's an interesting insight because at least I've found that the moment you can lay out some best practices or good evidence-based suggestions to people, one of the most common responses is, well, yeah, that works great for this, but it would never work in our industry, restaurant, sector, geography, whatever the excuse of the day is. And that's one of the things I like about where these super bosses come from is they come from every industry, sector, company geography, et cetera. So there really is kind of a, a uniform effect to, you know, these are, these are things that are tried and true, regardless of where you find yourself in a leadership role, you can still use talent for. Um, so yeah, I guess you've eliminated that excuse. So bravo there, I guess is all I wanted to say with that question. <laughs> yeah, absolutely. Uh, I was, you know, you're right about that though. I've heard that many times when I'm talking about some other topic and, and you hear, and you've heard the same thing, right? Uh, well, that's interesting. It doesn't apply to us. We're different. And uh, I never liked that response because the truth is, while everyone is different, every company is different, every industry is different, there's a lot more similarity than, than not. But in the case of, of super bosses, um, it's absolutely the case that an in industry after industry, you, you see the same pattern. So it's kind of amazing. 
um, it does apply. Well, and there, you know, every every industry is made of people, right? And so people are, at the, are a lot of times at the core of these problems. And so it's not like your industry would be exempt from that unless your industry is run entirely by robots. But if it was, we wouldn't really be talking about how to attract, retain, develop, grow talent. Um, I wanted to ask you about one of the more interesting insights I saw, speaking of talent, is even let's just start at the beginning with where does that talent come from? One of the traits of super bosses is the idea that they look for talent in sort of unlikely places or they look for new untapped pools of talent. Tell us about sort of how you found that insight and then what advice for leaders comes out of that. Right. Well, you know, it was really it's really fascinating because every every company every large company has very you know sophisticated hr practices and their standard methods but you know super bosses they're not against any of the standard methods but they also add their own their own thing and uh, they're really talent spotters they're always on the lookout for great uh, for great talent how did i how did i realize that how did i discover that i interviewed hundreds of people for this research and you keep hearing the same story in some version after another and you begin to say wow well, this is really kind of one of the core one of the core things so you know the the one story was about uh, bill walsh you know the san francisco 49er head coach who um um, you know, won um, three or four Super Bowls in his time, and uh, many of his assistant coaches became head coaches throughout the uh, throughout the NFL. And uh, he went out one uh, one year to recruit a highly touted quarterback, and he went out to see him practice. And the quarterback was just throwing, you know, some some pass routes to his roommate who was just helping him out. Uh, roommate was on the football team, but not a star or anything like that. And Walsh is watching, and he's spending a few hours with him. And and then you know he goes back, and on draft day he ends up bypassing that that highly touted quarterback who ended up going in one of the first rounds and picks, I don't know, in the sixth or eighth or tenth round, the, the guy that was catching the ball for him. And that guy turns out to be Dwight Clark, the famous, you know, legendary San Francisco 49er receiver um, who, who made the catch in the end zone to win a Super Bowl. So always on the lookout for, and I have a lot of stories like that. It's just remarkable. Always looking for someone. And, when, and, and you know, when they find someone, when they think they find someone, they're willing to create an opportunity for them. They're, they're not a. Um, um, they're, they're they're not they're not stuck to just following the the job description and say you know uh, who checks the most boxes. Let's pick that person. They're they're looking for people that uh, that check boxes they haven't thought about even even uh, searching for in the first place. So they're really looking for some unusual talent. And to do that, you gotta you gotta kind of look at it, look for it in different places, kind of diamonds in the rough, if you will. Yeah, yo, know, and I love that insight too. That a, a lot of times when they find that talent, they're willing to adapt the job or even adapt sort of the whole organization or at least that division. To, to fit that talent. So they don't see it as just, you know, we have this box on the org chart that is now empty because somebody got promoted or somebody left. And so we've got to find a carbon copy of that person. Sometimes it's okay, well, there's this vacancy and then there's this really talented person. So let's rearrange what we have to do to make best use of this new talented person knowing, I mean, it seems, it seems easy on the surface, knowing that no new talent source is going to be the same as the talent that created that opening. So every time there's one of these, we kind of have to rewrite the org chart to figure out what is the best way to use this new source of talent. Well, you know, I, I like the, the kind of the way you're going with that insight, David, because their super bosses certainly are doing that. But in fact, Everyone is different, right? Every single person, even if you're looking for someone who is as similar to what you had in the past for that job, that person will still be somewhat different, maybe significantly different in some ways. Why not try to tap into some of those things that are different? 
One of the other insights I thought was really interesting in Super Bosses was the sort of the effect of talent in teams, what you kind of call the the cohort effect, this idea that even though we're encouraging teamwork and collegiality, we're also sort of inter- encouraging internal competition at the same time, and that the Super Bosses sort of navigate that balance perfectly, and it actually leads to far greater performance than if you just overstress one or the other. Yeah, it's, uh, it's one of these things that I found in a few places where um, what many people think are opposites. Uh, super bosses actually do both of them, and in particular, you're you're bringing up this cohort effect and the idea that that you want to you want to create both competition within a team, a degree of competition within a team, and collaboration. And most people look at those as opposites. You're either going to create competitive or cooperative or collaborative. And my, one of my favorite examples of that is uh, as actually Lauren Michaels, obviously the the founder, the the producer producer creator of Saturday Night Live, and been doing it for decades. And, uh, and, and again, someone has produced so, so many amazing talents in, in American comedy. And think about that, that show. Uh, it's not a stand-up comedy show. So to get on, you've got to create a skit with other people. You have to collaborate with writers and with other performers to create something. So there you go. Cooperate, collaborate, produce a skit. But because of the way the show works out during the, during the course of the week, as you get later and later in the week, they have their two and a half or three hours of material all these skits that have to get winnowed down into an hour, an hour and a half, right at, right towards the end. And that, in a sense, is the definition of competition. When you have only so many seats around the table and you got way more people, or in this case, skits. So both of those things are needed at the same time. And if you want to succeed at SNL, you got to learn how to cooperate, how to work with other people, how to take good ideas to other people. But at the same time, you can't lose a little bit of that edge that says, you know, you still want to win. You still want to get your, your skit out there on Saturday night. That's the combination that's so special. Yeah, no, I, I absolutely love that example. And I'm, I'm so if, well, you, you had said you're from Montreal, you'll catch this. I'm actually a huge fan of Lorne Michaels for one of his other underrated shows, Kids in the Hall. I always found that one to be cooler than Saturday Night Live, but I love the lessons that come out of the format of, of Saturday Night Live. I don't know, were you a Kids in the Hall fan? You know, I, I hate to tell you, I don't know that one, but. Uh, uh, it, it was on CBC all the time. So oh, it's okay. sort of north of the border, Saturday Night Live. Well, Lauren, Lauren Michaels has a lot of bona fides when it comes to comedy because his father-in-law, in his first marriage, his father-in-law was one of the most famous comedians in Canadian history and he had a show called Wayne and Schuster, which I remember as a kid watching every Sunday, every Sunday evening. And his father was one or the other, Wayne or Schuster. And uh, um, so he, he comes from that, uh, from that background. Oh, very cool. No, I, so there, all right, I learned something new about Lorne Michaels. Well, actually, I learned two new things about Lorne Michaels today. One, one from reading Superbosses and the other from, from this chat. So one of the other insights I thought that was really cool that was very sort of counterintuitive, and it's one that I've actually been looking at a lot in my research and in the book um, that, I, that I'm writing that comes out soon, is this idea of um, churn and also of saying goodbye. Like so many organizations, it's very much if you decide to leave or if they decide to invite you to be successful elsewhere, that's the end of the relationship. There's a security guard with a box and you probably never hear from anybody again. But one of the traits of super boss is this idea that we're saying goodbye on good terms. We're saying, you know, we're not saying farewell. We're saying keep in touch. And we're um, allowing, instead of responding with anger, we're sort of allowing that relationship to continue, even if they don't no longer sort of serve our organization or our needs. I thought that was a hugely interesting trait and very counterintuitive to kind of how we normally treat departing employees. Yeah, it is really one of the one of the most counterintuitive parts of the whole uh, of the whole whole uh, super boss playbook. And um, uh, you really, if you think if you think about it, we know that we can't retain talent just because we want to retain talent. We know that people are going to be looking, many people are going to be looking for new opportunities. And the best people, of course, are always looking to grow 
they want to run their own show. They want to have that opportunity. So if you want, if you want to have, remember generation regeneration of talent. If you want to have those great, those great people, then uh, why not 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 only think about you know how do you bring them in and recruit them? We talked a bit about that. Not only around developing and motivating and inspiring, but also managing them out of the organization. It's a crazy idea to to many for many people, but the truth is, um, this is going to be one of the biggest differentiators, I believe, over the next decades in. In, uh, in, in business, your ability to manage, and we even put this as the subtitle of the book, managing the flow of talent in, through, and, uh, and out. And, and you get a big bonus, by the way, when you do this, uh, which is you can become known as a talent magnet. Because if you've had people on your team or your organization that work for you for a while and then move on and are very, very successful, I mean, that's not a secret. People hear about that. People know about that, especially today with, you know, LinkedIn and so much data that's out there. It's not hard for us to figure out what the background is of people that have, been, that have done well. And so, yeah, we're going to look for where they came from and we're going to say, that could be a good breeding ground for me. I'm going to go see if I can connect with some of those people. I, I think that's going to be a big, uh, a really big factor in, uh, in what many companies are going to need to integrate and create in their own organizations. Yeah, I agree. I, and I think it also... I think it serves an interesting function too. In, a, in addition to being known as a talent magnet, you're sort of if you're if you're letting them grow, letting them grow even outside of you, and saying farewell on sort of on really good terms, they almost can sometimes even act as a source of new talent for you. You know, they're they're in an organization where there may not be somebody they encounter, or they just when they go about their day will encounter people. It's that sort of weak ties idea, right? They were strong with you, they knew all the same people, but if you let them grow into a leadership role in a different industry or even a different company or different geography. Now you're tapped in through that relationship to whole areas of new talent that you might not have been in the past. So it kind of, to me, I always saw it as it circles right back to the beginning of how to find new talent from different pools. It's, it's absolutely right. I mean, in some cases, super bosses will even rehire some of those people after they've had a tour of duty somewhere else for two, four or five years. But they can also, as you say, exactly right, tap into that, uh, into that community that your former protégés uh, are now part of. And because you help them get better, there's, a, there's this, powerful, this powerful bond. But what it all requires is, is for the individual boss, for a leader, to make it your business to stay in touch and to continue to interact and, and to manage that network as a key asset, because that's really what, that's really what it is. And it's not you know, networking one-on-one when you just talk to people every now and then. It's looking for business opportunities. It's continuing to help other people even when they've moved, uh, when they've moved on. It's, uh, it, it's a lot more than, than just kind of staying in touch. All those things are really big. Yeah, no, totally. And, and, and all of those things are, I mean, a lot of the insights in super bosses are ones that are in a, in a sense, a bit counterintuitive, I guess it stands to reason to be counterintuitive because the intuitive would lead you to just bosses. The counterintuitive would lead you to super bosses, right? So, um, so I, I love the book for that reason. I love the book for those insights. Again, it's super bosses, how exceptional leaders master the flow of talent. And, and I do agree with you. The key word there is on flow. I wonder if we could switch a bit from the book to you and ask you the five questions we ask all of the thought leaders that are that are on the show. The first one: What's the best advice you've ever received? Oh boy, I have uh, I've gotten a lot. I've been lucky. I've gotten a lot of great advice. But you know, um, uh, the best advice I received is actually going to connect to the super boss theme, as it turns out. And I don't know whether subliminally it had an impact on how I was thinking when I was doing this research or not. But um, uh, pretty early in my, in my uh, career, I, was, I was actually just had a master's degree. And um, I didn't know what I was going to do. But I ended up being in, hired back by the, my undergraduate institution to be an instructor. Uh, 
pre-PhD. I wasn't doing any research. I was just a teacher. And uh, I thought that's a great way to spend uh, spend some time. That was fun. I loved doing it. And uh, and so I, I did and I uh, had a two-year contract. And then the contract is coming up and I had done, done really well. You know, students like me and et cetera. Uh, and the department chair, uh, I still remember this meeting um, and it was a few years ago. Uh, he says, you know, uh, we're not going to renew your contract, Sydney. We're not, we're not going to do it. And of course, you know, your heart plummets. You say, holy cow, you know, this is like really fun. I'm doing well. I like it. Um, and, he said the re- and, and he said, the reason why we're not going to renew your contract is if you really are serious about this, you got to go get a PhD. You got to earn your stripes. You got to learn how to do research. You have to go out and accomplish way more than just coming here and, and teaching, even though you're, you're highly competent in that. That's not enough. And that, of course, uh, pushed me into the direction of the career I, I, ended up, I ended up having and would not have been possible without you know, or, or, you know, getting your credentials, earning your credentials and paying your dues and doing what you need to do to, to become expert at something. So uh, it's funny. The advice was, uh, you know, I'm firing you uh, and it's for your own good. And it was it was exactly right. Yeah, no, totally. And, and I'm firing you on good terms. Right. Which is exactly the insight we were just talking I'm about. Everybody, I'm telling everybody the story. So exa- exactly. Yeah. Yeah. No, totally. What's an average day look like for you? Uh, well, you know, I'm fortunate in the sense that I don't have a ton of average days because I, uh, of course, I teach uh, as a faculty member at the Tuck School. I teach MBA students. I uh, do a lot of executive education. Um, I write these books, so I do a lot of research. I, I do some other types of research. Um, I speak to with companies and uh, I do some consulting. Um, I like to cook. I do a lot of things. Uh, so I don't know if it's a typical uh, uh, typical day, and it's a pretty good attraction to to kind of the career I've. Uh, I've stumbled. Uh, I've stumbled into, but I think the things that are maybe in, in common every every single day uh, is um, really looking for something that is energizing that I could learn learn something about. Whether it's uh, about my students, whether it's about research, whether it's about a client, uh, but looking for opportunities to learn. Um, it's not that I wake up and I say, "Okay, what am I going to learn today?" But it's almost like that, and. Uh, um, and I like to make sure that I uh, that I eat well, and I try to uh, get a little bit of time for exercise most uh, uh, most days. Um, um, I want uh, you know, as you as is the case for for you, David. You know, we're traveling. You're on the road. You're on the road a fair amount. So it's not that you could always be with your family, but anytime that there's that opportunity, I I love it. So uh, it's actually not a very good answer to your question because I don't have all that many typical days. But those are some of the elements and some of the things I'm thinking about. Yeah, yeah. What are you reading right now? Well, I finally got around to uh, to reading um, um, uh, Laszlo uh, Box book, um, uh, Work Rules, which probably you know as well. Um, and he's the guy that runs uh, Google uh, HR, um, and uh, and it's all about how Google thinks about uh, thinks about uh, people issues and. Some of it is is fascinating. Other other things are maybe more common. But just to get that insight into um, into a company that today is is operating somewhat close to what a super boss company looks like is really uh, is really uh, interesting. And uh, and I also have on my bookshelf an old uh, an older book that was published maybe six eight ten years ago by now um, that I'm starting to read. It's called uh, Heat. Uh, and it's written by Bill Bill Buford, uh, Buford who uh, he was a I don't know if he was the editor at the New Yorker or a writer at the New Yorker, but he is a genius uh, writer. And it's all about you know, I'll just tell you the subtitle. Uh, you know, an amateur's adventures 
as a kitchen slave, line cook, pasta maker, and apprentice. Uh, so, you know, for a foodie to, to see, uh, and someone who likes to write and enjoys, you know, the, the literary world, this is a guy who writes beautifully, writes about food, and writes about his personal adventures, and it's a chock full of interesting lessons about innovation, about apprenticeships, and, and, and really about, about trying new things. Yeah, no, that's cool. That sounds a lot like, uh, like Kitchen Confidential, but with a little bit more on the apprenticeship side. And not that Tony Bourdain's not a great writer, but with a little bit more uh, of, a, of a seasoned writer at that point. And I'm totally with you, by the way, on Laszlo Bach's book. I actually thought I was sort of done writing my new book. And then I read that one and thought, okay, there's a couple insights in here I can't not mention in mine because they're really good. Um, so here's, so here's what I think is our, our most interesting question of the five. Actually, four and five are both hugely interesting. What do you believe that most people don't? I, uh, I believe that um, no matter who you are, whether you're a CEO, a president, or a candidate for president, um, you are uh, very, very similar to you and to me and to just about everyone else, much more similar than different. And might not look that way because some of these people are unbelievably wealthy and, of course, in the public eye. And, and there's different skills and, and intelligence and experiences. But uh, it's really a conclusion I came to from a lot of my own, my own research uh, that, you know, th th they're just people. Um, and just like all of us, sometimes, you know, we don't like to get criticized. We stick our head in the sand sometimes, procrastinate. Uh, um, we have certain biases and emotions and that affect how we make decisions. Everybody, everybody is like that, no matter what it is you're doing, no matter what walk of life you're in. And it's a great equalizer when you, uh, when you kind of realize that, because it, it, what it really means is that truly no one is better than you. They may have accomplished things you'd never dream of being able to accomplish, but that's not the point. The point is about who you are as a person and what you're made of. And, uh, and I think when we kind of level the playing field a little bit, it kind of raises the bar for everyone to say, you know, I don't need to be intimidated by someone that has this you know, incredible resume and did all this stuff. Uh, okay, they, that's their path. They chose that path. But I can choose my own path, and I'm going to have an impact in my own way, in my own community, in, 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 in over the course of my own, my own time, my own life. And I find that very, um, very inspiring and meaningful, and I also think it's accurate. Yeah. No, I'm, I'm actually right there with you. I, even from a young age, my, I remember my brother would make fun of me about this because we'd go to different like uh, music rock shows and I never got starstruck. He always did. Right. And I was always just like, it's just another guy he puts his, you know, he might put his gold pants on one leg at a time, but he puts them on <laughs> one leg at a time. Right. So, um, by the way, David, the reverse is also, you know, we're talking about rock stars and CEOs and presidential candidates and all that, but you know, just somebody who is, uh, uh I don't know the, the people that come in to, to clean your office. Um, the, the people that are shoveling the snow there, there's nothing that, I mean, they're, they're people. They deserve our respect. They deserve to have an opportunity to accomplish certain certain goals uh, that are meaningful for uh, for them. Um, and uh, I ne I've never thought, you know, given that you know some of the things that I do, that I'm any better or I'm any any worse. It's it's really you know we're all born with certain um, uh, skills, capabilities uh, uh, from our genetic makeup, um, and it's what you do with it that really means something to me. If you're born with all kinds of advantages, uh, well, the bar is started at this kind of high IQ, uh, wealthy family connections. Now, what are you going to accomplish with your life from there? And if you're born to, in much tougher circumstances, what, what, what's your contribution to the world? And it's a different, uh, it's a different um, contribution, but it's just, as, uh, it's just as meaningful. 
Yeah, I totally agree. Totally agree. So the title of the show is Radio Free Leader, and Superbosses is about how exceptional leaders master the flow of talent. In your mind, what makes someone a leader? Uh, my, uh, there's a lot of definitions of, le- of leaders and leadership, as, as you know. But my, my definition of a leader is uh, a leader is someone who creates uh, other leaders. And to translate that into, into the Superboss world, it is uh, a, a leader, a Superboss leader, if you will, is, is someone that helps other people accomplish more than they ever thought possible. And uh, the door opens wide when you can accomplish, uh, when you can do that. Um, and it gets back to kind of this core theme that's driven, uh, that's kind of my realization over time that's driven a lot of my work over the last decade, which is, uh, it's, it's all about generating and regenerating talent. And that, that's the job of a leader to do that more than anything else. I, I agree. That's a, that's a great insight. The book again, super bosses, how exceptional leaders master the flow of talent. Sid, thank you so much for joining us on radio free leader. It's been a real pleasure, David. Thank you. 